Well, here in Acts 16, without waiting for any formal judicial process, the magistrates had Paul and Silas stripped and beaten with rods. We read that it was a severe beating with many blows. And in all of this, there had been a complete lack of any due process. And before the end of the chapter, that is going to come back to haunt the authorities in Philippi. You know from the rest of the New Testament that this is one of at least three occasions when Paul was beaten with rods in this manner. And the pain of it all must have been absolutely excruciating. We read together about the actual crime. It had been to cast an evil spirit out of a slave girl in the name of Jesus Christ. And the owners of the slave girl, who used to profit from her powers of divination, were so upset by this that they had Paul and Silas seized on the basis of false accusations. This beating was followed up by further punishment. Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. And as far as we know, this would have been the Apostle Paul's first stint in a Roman prison. Sanitation would be minimal, rodents would be entirely normal, and the company would not be desirable in any way. It would not be Paul's last imprisonment. The magistrates had charged the jailer to guard these men securely, and as a result of this, they end up in the inner prison cell. They didn't receive any basic medical care. Their wounds were not washed or dressed, and their feet were taken and fastened into the stocks so that their suffering would only continue. Now, given the state that they were in after the beating, all of this must have been horrific. But it would only worsen. Apparently, one of the worst things about the stocks as a form of punishment was the stabbing cramps that would eventually lead to sudden and involuntary contraction of those immobilized limbs clamped down into a wooden frame. Just think about these circumstances. It seemed as if this was the hour of darkness. Here are Paul and Silas. They've been beaten within an inch of their lives, and they're now in the deepest dungeon, and they are there simply because of their testimony to Jesus Christ. Those feet, which ought to have been going out with the good news, now find themselves locked down. And yet here is the incredible thing. At midnight, a sound is heard rising from the blackness and the stale air of that innermost cell. And it's not the sound of weeping, cursing, bitterness, or complaint. Rather, it is the sound of prayer and song. Here in this dark place, the missionaries are praying and singing to God, just like the psalmist in Psalm 42 
God has sent them a song in the night. And I love the fact that this is no whimper. It's not as if they're there silently whispering under their breath to God. The other prisoners in this jail get to listen in, and that means that their witness does not go unheard. The powers of darkness might have tried to contain them, but they simply could not. Their apostolic work continues even there in prison because sinners are hearing the good news that has been entrusted to the church. As one 17th century English poet put it, stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Their bodies were confined, but their souls were gloriously free. Now, isn't this the exact opposite of what we would expect under those circumstances? We've rehearsed it together. They've been beaten. They've been shackled. They're at the bottom of this cold, damp, disease-ridden dungeon, and yet there is joy. There's joy because for our missionaries, their suffering is a testimony to them of their identity in Jesus Christ. We know from the book of Acts how the apostles view and understand such things. They are not here simply being stoic, trying to put on a brave show. They know that as they walk this path, they're walking in the path of their Lord and Savior. And therefore, they count it a privilege to walk in the steps of the Master. And then suddenly, at midnight, there was a great earthquake. The earthquake was so severe that even the very foundations of the prison were shaken. Now, historians know that earthquakes were not uncommon in this area of Macedonia, but the time and the place indicates that this is a matter of divine intervention. As a result of the tremors, the locked doors were thrown open and everyone's chains were suddenly released. Now, as wonderful as that providence was, the risen and ruling Lord Jesus' work that night was not yet complete. Because when the jailer sees the doors are open, he is sure that everyone is gone, and he figures out that he is as good as a dead man. After all, what prisoner, given the opportunity to flee, would stay put? Well, when the jailer sees this, he prepares to kill himself. He knows that death is likely to be the penalty that he would face for allowing prisoners to escape. And for him, he did the only thing that seemed to make sense to him at that moment. Losing prisoners was a disgraceful thing for a Roman jailer. It was all over for him. And so he thinks to himself that somehow or other, he might regain some honor out of this by falling on his sword. So he draws his sword and he is ready to do the deed. Paul has other ideas. With a loud voice, he calls out into the darkness, do yourself no harm. 
Paul says, we're all still here. No one has gone. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it remarkable? Isn't this such a striking example of what God's grace does in people's lives? The jailer had done Paul and Silas harm. And yet Paul is able to say to him, don't harm yourself. We are all still here. Well, as Luke records the episode for us, he tells us that the jailer called for light and he ran into the prison and he must have quickly made a head count. He tallies things up. Everyone was still there and his life would be spared. But notice this. He doesn't then suddenly rejoice that that night he has had a lucky escape. Nor does he rush to try to secure the prisoners and to lock the doors in case anyone happens to have second thoughts about this. In fact, at that moment, when he realizes that everyone is still there, his fears do not dissipate. Verse 29, trembling, he falls down before Paul and Silas. What is going on here? Well, this earthquake has awakened the jailer from something more than mere physical sleep. The earthquake had come and had actually shaken and aroused a far greater fear. Because that night, the earthquake had portrayed to him in the most graphic of ways that all the securities that we think that we have in this world, they can, in just one moment, be shaken away from us. Here is a man who had been going through life spiritually asleep, unaware of his destiny. And now he had passed through one crisis, only to see a far greater catastrophe opening up in front of him. Because moments beforehand, this is a man who had been seconds away from entering into eternity. He had drawn his sword. He was ready to fall on it. He was just one step away from meeting his judge, and he had no savior. He realized that he would be called to give an account, and he would be found wanting. And all at once, he knew and he sensed that he was doomed. He would face a holy judge, not like those judges and magistrates in Philippi, but a judge marked by perfect righteousness, and one who would, in his justice, cast him into an even deeper dungeon than the one which he supervised in Philippi, a place of outer darkness, a place from which no prayer nor praise would rise to be heard. The only sound that would come from that place of torment would be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Here is a man who was filled with fear. He was filled with the fear of the living God. And so he falls down before Paul and Silas, 
Like everyone else in Philippi, he knew that Paul and Silas were in prison on religious charges. Remember the slave girl? Back in verse 17, the one from whom Paul had exorcised the demon, she had been going through the streets of the city announcing that these men are here announcing the way of salvation, telling people how to be saved. And the jailer knew that these men were different. The jailer must never have experienced anything like this before. Paul and Silas owed him absolutely nothing, and yet they had sacrificed their freedom in order to save his life. And the doors of the prison opened, prisoners run free, but not these men. They had stayed, and they stayed so that he could be saved. Now, let's step back from this a second, because there's an important lesson here for all of us as we think about the jailer's experience, because it remains the case that God still shakes lives in order to awaken people from spiritual slumber. I wonder, is there anyone here this evening who knows that experience? To be suddenly woken up, not from physical sleep, but from a spiritual sleep by an earthquake in your own personal circumstances. A shaking of our lives which brings home to us how easily everything in this life that we value can be lost. And then some of those aftershocks that go with it, the realization which comes home to us about what it would mean not simply to lose the things of this life, but to go into eternity, and as Jesus put it, to lose your very soul. God still shakes lives like that. And a temporal deliverance in our experience can lead to the same thing that the jailer experienced here. It can lead us to verbalize that much deeper question, what must I do to be saved? Well, the wonderful thing here is that Paul and Silas knew the answer to that question. They didn't ask the jailer, first of all, to come and to bathe their wounds and to clothe them. Paul didn't speak up and, first of all, demand an apology from the jailer for the dreadful way in which they had been treated. Paul didn't tell him to be baptized, even though that man and his family would be baptized before the evening was out. The question was straightforward, what must I do? And the answer was equally clear, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul's answer was simply to proclaim Jesus, to offer the jailer the gospel. Well, in verse 32, they speak further, and as a result of this, the jailer is brought to a living faith in Jesus Christ. We might say that the jailer was set free, and his whole family got to hear the good news. And so, in verse 33, it's still night, but spiritually for this family, a whole new day has dawned. Paul and Silas are brought into the house. The jailer fetches water to wash their wounds. This hardened jailer has already been changed by the gospel. 
Initially, he was callous. He showed no concern for them, but now he's there stooping to tend their wounds. And they reciprocate by baptizing the man and his family. Now, notice a few little details as we draw things to a close. Three things in particular. And the first one is this. I want you to notice something which keeps coming up in the writings of Luke, whether it's in Luke's gospel or in his second volume, the Acts of the Apostles. And it's this. It's the fact that the preaching of the Word of God and the administration of the sacraments, those two things, they belong together. We had it in what we were giving our special focus to with the jailer having the gospel proclaimed to him, the ministry of God's Word, and that was followed up by the jailer and his family being baptized. Exactly the same thing happened earlier in the chapter with what we read about with Lydia. They were there, Paul opened up the Word of God to her, and as a response, the sacrament of baptism took place. It keeps coming up. You think of the journey down the road to Emmaus, where Jesus Christ is made known to those troubled disciples through the ministry of His Word, opening up to the fact that the whole of the Old Testament, all the Scriptures pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus is made known through the Scriptures and then through the breaking of bread. Think about that record of the priorities of the early church in Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to the breaking of bread. You can think of that curious little incident with Eutychus later on in Acts, where Eutychus falls from the window after Paul speaks on and on late into the night. He's raised from the dead, and they go back up to that upper room, and they break bread. Luke reminds us again and again and again, that the proclamation of God's Word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they go together. It's because the Lord knows us through and through, and He knows that what we hear with our ears, weak, frail creatures that we are, also needs to be confirmed to us by what we see with our eyes. That's the first thing to notice. Word and sacrament belong together in this section and across Luke's writings. Here's the next thing. Notice the fact that the gospel brings about real fellowship. The gospel is powerful to bring people together. It brings together people who once were at odds with one another. And one of the places where we see that so clearly in the Bible is in Acts 16, because that's a chapter that records how when Paul came to the great city of Philippi preaching the good news, all sorts of people were converted. There's Lydia, this rich, successful businesswoman. The Lord opens her heart, and she's changed. And then there's this otherwise unknown slave girl right at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Her life's changed by the gospel. There's the jailer, probably a retired Roman soldier, a tough, hardened man who had seen life at its most brutal. The gospel's powerful to change his life as well. And Paul knew it in his own experience. So a man so unlike the jailer, different sort of background, different sorts of experiences, but the good news of Jesus Christ changed his life as well. 
it brings all these people together. A jailer who, first of all, had no concern for Paul and Silas, now he brings them into his home and he feeds them. The gospel brings people together. It brings people together in Philippi, and it's powerful in our situation today to bring people from all sorts of different backgrounds together in the church of Jesus Christ. One last thing, verse 34. The episode ends with great joy because the gospel produces this deep, lasting joy. The family here enters into the covenant and joy fills the house. And so no matter how dark it was outside, in this home, the light of joy was shining. What does Paul say to this church when later he writes to the Philippians from another period of imprisonment? You remember the words he wrote, rejoice in the Lord, and I say it again, rejoice. I love to imagine what it would have been like when that letter was being read out to the Philippian church. Who was there that day when the letter from Paul arrived? Was the slave girl there sitting in a pew near Lydia? Was the jailer there? Because if the jailer had been there when that was read out, the jailer would certainly have been nodding along, remembering and reminding himself about what happened on the night when Paul ended up in his jail. Because there, once again, Paul's imprisonment was serving to advance the gospel. And there, even in the most dark circumstances, Paul was rejoicing in the Lord as the sound of praise rose up from the darkness of that cell. The ministry of word and sacrament, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's a gospel that saves. It's a gospel which brings people together, and it's one which produces great joy. May it be so amongst us. Let us pray.